Today, I'm honored to welcome Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee to China Talk. We'll get into the Restrict Act, state capacity to analyze emerging technologies, the future of industrial policy, the nature and limits to bipartisanship around China, as well as the government's role in regulating artificial intelligence. Mr. Senator, thank you so much for coming on the show. Jordan, thanks for having me on. So let's start with the Restrict Act, your recent proposal to give commerce the ability to get between Russian and Chinese ICT suppliers and U.S. businesses and customers. What's the pass forward from a process perspective? Well, Jordan, before I answer that, I want to lay out kind of my evolution um, on China. I mean, I remember when I was governor back in the early 2000s, leading a trade mission to China, very much encouraging more bilateral trade, encouraging greater academic exchanges. And, and then remember starting in 2010, I got on the, the intelligence committee where what I was hearing in the public domain versus what I was hearing in the classified domain were almost night and day. This got much, much more contrast, stark contrast, you know, when President Xi took over in the 2012 timeframe, where it became clearly evident that President Xi thought the CCP was going to maintain its its leadership position, and that he wanted a one a more authoritarian regime. Two, that he he saw this as a, a a bilateral contest in terms of a lot of technology development, and that China he was going to basically ignore traditional rule of law and encourage intellectual property theft at an unprecedented level. To the point that starting in 2017, I started hosting a series of classified, what I call classified roadshow briefings, um, always on a bipartisan basis with le leaders from the FBI, the Director of National Intelligence, CISA, the industry sector after industry sector uh, about this competition um, with China, as well as meeting with academic institutions. So, you know, and, and, my, and I want to make clear at the front end of this, of this podcast, and I think it's critically important to do so, is to make clear my beat is with the CCP and Xi's leadership. It is not with the Chinese people. It is not with the Chinese diaspora, uh, because I think when policymakers fail to do that, since so much of the diaspora communicates on platforms like WeChat, and it becomes fodder for the CCP to say, hey, see, this is just anti-Asian, anti-Chinese rhetoric. And it comes to restrict. Um, restrict was a, a something well, that evolved. Let, let, let's, stay, let's stay on the broader stuff then, if, we, if you want to start there. So um, the, the kind of bipartisan evolution um, and like consensus on China is something you, as you just described, had a front row seat to. Um, what do you think were, were there particular sort of turning points? And could you sort of describe the nature of the consensus and how far it goes um, today when it comes to policymaking on the Hill? Well, I think <clears throat> as China changed its laws to make explicitly clear that all Chinese companies' first obligation is to the CCP, not to shareholders not to customers, that was important. I think the, and the big wake up call for me and maybe as somebody who used to be in the wireless industry before I got involved in politics, the kind of shot across the bow uh, of Huawei coming in and not only being a leading player in 5G wireless development, but also China starting to move into the, the standard setting bodies and literally flooding the zone on what had been normally standard setting entities that regardless of where the technology was invented, the United States dominated. Um, if anything, it became so bipartisan that and I would see sometimes on the Republican side, 
almost a rush to see who could be, who could out China hawk each other, uh, that um, it's almost sometimes become problematic because there are clearly places where we still need to engage with China. There are clearly things that we cannot solve on their own. Um, there's There's got to be a level of sophistication. For example, I am you know, strongly don't believe America should be buying Huawei telecom equipment because of the potential security risks uh, and, and having the whole hardware stack, you know, running some of our wireless networks. But I'm still open to the idea of American semiconductor companies selling legacy chips to Huawei handsets because that's a commodity item that would otherwise be, be uh, they will be purchased from Korea, t- Taiwanese, Singaporean, other entities. So I do think trying to convince some of my Republican friends, you know, we've got to have a scalpel rather than a sledgehammer, uh, particularly when it, I, I cite the example of, around the Inflation Reduction Act, because candidly, there's a series of areas like solar, like battery power and others, where we almost have to steal back or find a way to bring back technology from China if we are going to get them uh, the full advantage of some of those investments. So um, I do think it is an area where there is broad bipartisan consensus. I think um, you know, I spent uh, some time with Mike Gallagher, who the Speaker in the House put in, put in charge of this a China committee. I think Mike is a very smart and sophisticated guy. Um, and, and so I, I think this is an area, and it's one of the reasons why I believe that the CHIPS bill Implementation of the CHIPS bill done correctly is so important because, you know, we're into areas that traditionally some of my Republican friends were, were reluctant to go towards, which is quasi-industrial policy, where we failure to have America invest or allies invest will leave the, the field to Chinese entities since they receive enormous amounts of government subsidies. But if we don't get the CHIPS implementation right, our ability to make similar type investments, whether it's in AI or quantum or synthetic biology, advanced energy is going to be seriously diminished. So this is very much a work in progress, uh, both in terms of implementation around chips, as we get into these questions about um, technologies that come from the China's, Russia's, Iran's, North Korea's, it was the basis and the genesis of the Restrict Act. Uh, the good news is it's, it's um, Broadly bipartisan. The bad news is that it is a field that is changing real time. Sure. So, oh man, lots of follow-ups from that. So let's th- maybe stay on the Chips and Science Act. First, um, you know, prospects for um, appropriations of the science part of that, as well as, you know, what you think the Chips Act team needs to um, deliver on in order to do this sort of, uh, you know, execute in the sort of way that will unlock future um, investments in other emerging technologies in the future. Well, let me take those in order. I think on the the science portion, there, are, there is a great deal of interest in the tech hubs. And the Chips and Science Act had a very aggressive 20 tech hubs. Uh, I'm not sure we'll get to the full 20, but I do think there's enough states around the country that are interested in potentially securing one that I see, um, I see the, the prospects for funding there uh, pretty good. On the, the question, and I've met with the CHIPS, CHIPS implementation team, um, you know, I think they're going about it in as smart and sophisticated way as possible. What I am immediately concerned with is, you know, while $52 billion sounds like a lot, $39 billion of that will go as incentives. 12 to $13 billion goes to, 
you know, research, things like the defense industry. Um, the 39 billion well, sounds like a lot when you look at the size and cost of investments of these fabrication facilities or, or factories. I am seriously concerned that the big announcements that have already been made that the uh, chip CEOs may come in and say, well, you know, I was thinking I only needed $2 billion, but now with inflation, I need $3 billion. And I'm gravely concerned that that money could all be eaten up just by the, the needs of the major announcements that have already been made. And I think that would be a serious error. And I think the chips team understands that. I hope they will make clear in their guidance so the expectations are properly set. We have to not only you know, support the Intels and Microns and TSMCs and TIs, Samsungs, et cetera. But this, having this complete ecosystem, you know, America and elsewhere located, but not concentrated in the PRC, means that that money has to be spent not just on fabs, but needs to be spent on other components in the supply chain. And, you know, from the tools, which are very important to the packaging on the other, at the other end after, uh, after, after the, the fab process. And my fear is just candidly that the states that have already been winners will have senators and congressmen that are strong, strong advocates of, of their states getting as much of this money as possible. And while the majority of states haven't benefited, are enough of the rest of us going to be willing to say, no, slow down, let's make sure these investments are well made, but you've got a reserve for second and third round needs in terms of the supply chain. Sure. Um, coming back to the sort of questions around bipartisan consensus on, you know, what China is, where it's going and how the U.S. should respond. I'm curious if there are any like, you know, you mentioned sort of sledgehammer versus scalpel as one of the risks you saw of things you might be concerned about the GOP going. I'm curious if there are any other sort of uh, worrisome trends as well as, you know, what potentially could happen within Beijing that might change your, um, uh, you know, might change some of your views on uh, how the U.S. should uh, respond to China. Well, I do favor the administration continuing to talk. I mean, I think, you know, um, and I, I think things got beyond either side's control in a short sense when Secretary Blinken was planning on going and then we had the, uh, uh, the incredible spy balloon uh, fiasco. Um, I think both sides wish those talks had been able to take place, number one. Number two, I don't think, I don't see any evidence that Beijing or President Xi in particular has any indication that he is backing off. If anything, his statements in recent weeks have been more, you know, kind of pedal to the metal about decoupling or, you know, or concern about, you know, America rallying other non-authoritarian regimes into some kind of alliance. Um, I think there is still, uh, I still get surprised at times. We have continued to do these, what I again call classified roadshows. And we had a, a um, the most recent one about a month ago, a month and a half ago. And we had 40 Fortune 200 CEOs in the room. And one Fortune 50 CEO in this classified setting, was basically saying, hey, Senator, come on, you don't really believe that she is going to move on Taiwan. You don't really believe this is going to get to crisis state. And I felt like, oh my gosh, you know, you're supposedly a sophisticated CEO. You've got a 
company with huge international holdings, if you are not building into your business calculus uh, the chance that this she could take on military intervention or even short of that, a major blockade, and that the possibilities of things ratcheting up is frankly, at this moment in time, higher, I believe, than things cooling off. Mm. Uh, it was a it was a bit of a wake up moment for me that that um, um, there's still a lot of people that don't want to don't want to believe the facts. I mean, I see this. I also saw this very much so pre-COVID from the American private equity business who were making so much money investing in Chinese tech. They didn't even want to take the brief and they didn't take the brief pre-COVID. No, post-COVID private equity has taken the brief and they're, I think they are kind of um, um, more on more understanding of the risks, but it's still a, it's still a shifting field. Uh, do you have a vision for how we get to a steady state where you don't have any of those scary scenarios and the U.S. and China are able to, you know, end up living in a world um, without, I don't know, World War Three coming down the pipeline? Like, what, what where, where can we end up that's, like, acceptable uh, first, for both the sides? The first place we need to start is to build up our alliances and not turn this into a, you know, a binary choice where countries are positioned as you got to take the American side or you got to take the Chinese side. I think in, you know, there's a lot of reasons that there's a lot of openings now with a lot of nation states. One, we've seen many of the countries that have been recipients of the Belt and Road projects realize, hey, this deal sounded too good to be true. And it was, wasn't that great a deal. We didn't get the workforce because China would bring in their own workers. The quality of the infrastructure investments were pretty poor. And the debt levels that a lot of these nation states have picked up uh, is is terribly frightening. So there, with the Belt and Road countries, there's an open. I think the way that she and, and the, through the COVID lockdown um, scared a lot of nation states. I think the uh, the treatment not only of the Uyghurs but of the people in Hong Kong in particular uh, has had set off an alarm. And I think the fact that throughout this period, CCP has continued to you know have massive intellectual property theft while they continue to do more and more locking down their own industries, um, gives us an opportunity. And part of the, that opportunity is even how we talk about things. I cringe when any American policymaker says, well, in re regards to China, America and the West, or America and NATO, because every time we do that, we piss off two thirds of the world. I, I was just in India, you know, India is, is appropriately as having a large long border with China, obsessed about China. Most of our, our, our nation states in Asia, I mean, I think about the switch over even in the Philippines leadership in the last year, how their views on China have dramatically changed. I think about all these nation states in Africa or in South America, some of which were, were recipients of Dalton Road initiatives that would much rather do business with us, but we've got to We've got to reach out. So st stage one is let's build as strong and broad an alliance as possible of non-authoritarian nations against the Chinas and Russias at all. I think um, where we obviously have to collaborate uh, is, is around climate change. And you know, China is, is kind of trying to do both worlds at once, continue to uh, invest in, and move forward fossil fuels, but also at the same time, invest at an even greater level than us on you know, greener energy and advanced energy. Uh, we're going to following what they're doing in fusion energy and, and small modular nuclear. 
Um, so I think we have to figure out where's where we need to collaborate. I think we need to keep these channels open. I can assure you uh, that one of the things that concerns me greatly, and again, with the blowns was one example, uh, but China in certain ways is obviously a, a, a great, great nation, but the communication structure we have with them is still a little fragile. I mean, we've had 70 years of animosity with the Soviet Union and Russia. There are many, many touch points beyond even kind of the, the direct, you know, Washington, Moscow hotlines where things, where, where events can, uh, if things start to go awry, there's communication modes to try to put things in, in on pause. We saw during the, the Bloom phenomena where yeah, as high as been reported in the public domain, Secretary Austin trying to reach out to his Chinese counterparts and a whole host of individuals kind of down the chain of command trying to reach out and nobody in Beijing picking up the phone. Now that kind of that kind of immature response is one of the ways that you could really lead to the kind of crisis where you know more reasonable heads could find ways to defuse a, a, a potential crisis. So let's build the alliance. Let's find areas where you need to communicate. Let's make sure number three that we have open um, uh, communication modes to, to different levels in the, the Chinese government, so we can avoid the unintentional crisis. Uh, and, and then. Um, Another area where I, uh, I see almost as dangerous as any particular item is, and this is where we and our friends need to better engage, and that is in, as these new technologies develop, how do we make sure that the standard-setting bodies, this gets kind of nerdy, I know, but maybe hopefully your audience gets it, but you know, the standard-setting bodies, the policy-making entities that usually we've dominated, that China doesn't dominate them because, you know, I know we'll get to AI in a moment, but with all the potential upside and downside of AI, an AI that had a Chinese underpinning with their lack of transparency, lack of respect for human rights, lack for respect in what I think most of the rest of the world would agree in, you know, kind of basic human dignity values. Um, if that doesn't scare you, that possibility, it should. Um, yeah, so so let's let's stay on this for for a second. The sort of idea of a technological and like economic equilibrium with China. You mentioned that you know you were fine with us selling the sort of inputs to legacy nodes. Like, can you expand that more conceptually of like where you see like what kind of framework you think is okay for the U.S. and China to be engaging in from an economic and technological perspective for the next well, decade? I think, I think we have to open these communication, make sure that traditional and non-traditional communication modes are available, number one. Number two, uh, I don't see, uh, and from the China's activities to the statements of President Xi and other Chinese leaders, though, anything that indicates in these technology competitions, anything that is based on a collaborative model. Uh, most all of Xi's statements have been about, uh, and some of the senior leadership have been about Chinese dominance, about winning the competition um, and winning the competition doesn't mean, in, in my mind, is not a signal that you send if you're trying to say you actually want to you know, develop, develop together or come to some common understanding or yep. recognize there ought to be this free flow, free flow of goods. I mean, one of the things that has just amazed me for 
for years. And I give, again, uh, the CCP credit for their ability to kind of play off American business versus European versus Japanese when they were stealing intellectual property from all three, but able to play us off um, when we should have been allied against this kind of, uh, this, you know, unlevel playing ground. Um, and we should all be collaborating, but we have, I see some of that changing. And I, I think a lot of this will require, again, the private sector to recognize what, what, a, what still bothers me is the number of large private sector entities that say, yeah, I get that they are stealing from us. And I get the fact that, you know, they don't abide by rule of law and gosh, it's awful what they do to some of their own people, but it's such a big market. I got to turn a blind eye to that. I think that is changing. Um, but unless there is, you know, from business, a, some level of, of recognition that this is at the end of the line, not good for them. If they're participating in an economy that, that treats their people so badly, or if you're suddenly giving up the, the price of that joint venture is you've got to give up intellectual property. You've got to transfer your technology. Um, that's still a, an evolving target. I think because we had that both alliance and we had that collaboration with business, I think we then go much stronger into the, the vision of how these two world's biggest economies um, can actually collaborate and work together. Um, so this is a nice transition point, maybe to artificial intelligence, because um, you, you, recent, you and your staff recently just wrote a letter to a number of leading um, open AI companies and labs emphasizing uh, this idea of research security. Um, and sort of asking them, you know, do they have Kaspersky on their computers and uh, sort of a, a number of questions, mostly along the lines of the very reasonable question of like, what happens when weights get stolen uh, via industrial espionage? I guess I'm curious, um, but it is sort of interesting that, you know, OpenAI, when it started releasing products, you know, has a number of countries um, already on the list, you know, regardless of what export controls are now, um, including China, that aren't able to to gain uh, sort of API access to um, uh, to its technologies. I guess I'm I'm curious, you know, what was the motivation behind that letter, and you know, more broadly, where you think government has a role to play in the regulation and um, uh, uh, potential support of a uh, of a uh, artificial intelligence. Well, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. First of all, I'm trying to learn as much as I can as quickly as I can. And uh, the fact that I got a technology background may give me a tiny advantage, but it is small as I, as I try to process all this myself, number one. Um, number two, I, I, I think, as you said, you know, certain oh, and open AI, Sam Altman and his team, they are not participating in some of these nation states because China doesn't want, you know, there are people to be able to uh, ask a question of a regenerative uh, AI model to say, tell us about Tiananmen Square. So, you know, the fact that it is all top down, you know, but don't underestimate the amount of money and effort that China is spending trying to create their own, their own platform here. Um, and so what I tried to do was, 
and I've where I've been educated, just the number of computer scientists that said they've been able to hack into some of these platforms already and change data about their about themselves, so that they when they when they then query. One scientist talked about the fact that uh, um, you know he made sure that anytime anybody queried him, they would put the word cow in there, and he'd say, you know, Doctor X was received all these numerous prizes, but unfortunately, he's not done any major research on cows. Uh, but this ability to kind of hack in and change the output um, was where it generated that at least there is should be a recognition that we need security built in. So many of the of our systems. On cybersecurity, for example, we bolt on cybersecurity after the fact. In these AI platforms, we need to build it in uh, as the platforms are developing, not as an afterthought. So I thought this was a safe, good spot to put a marker down where I think there would be um, uh, you know, broad consensus. In terms of a bigger role, I do believe there is a bigger ring uh, for government. I do believe there needs to be some regulatory guardrails that the example of social media where we said, you know, go forth, break things, and we'll figure out afterwards. We've not figured that anything out afterwards, and our, the, at least the U.S. Congress's performance has been pitiful in putting any guardrails in place. If that were the case in AI, we're screwed. But what that proposal looks like, I want to be... I want to be thoughtful, number one, and be better informed before I lay out some of those principles. And that's kind of a, a, a learning process I'm going through. And again, on a, at least for today, on a good news basis, we're doing some of these listening sessions and learning sessions very much on a bipartisan basis. So this sort of leads to questions about the, the both, both the executive and legislative branch ability to uh, sort of absorb, understand, and respond to emerging technologies. Over the past decade or so, you've had um, the the uh, U.S. government get a lot more active on both sides of these, uh, on both sides of of the promote and protect ledger. Um, uh, uh, last year, you had a uh, you proposed the American Technology Leadership Act, um, which was an idea to sort of create um, more uh, analytical capacity within the executive branch to um, sort of understand relative strengths and weaknesses in um, uh, in particular industries. I'm curious, you know, coming to the AI, uh, you know, bringing it back to your AI topic, like, um, you know, we don't have the Office of Technology. Uh, 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 assessment anymore in Congress? Like, do you think there needs to be another sort of layer of um, uh, investment in analytical chops, uh, both in the on the Hill and in the executive branch to help um, policymakers uh, wrap their heads around these uh, these fast moving issues? Short answer is yes. Whether, you know, whatever political capital I have, whether that's where I'm going to put all my, you know, I'd rather be the, uh, uh, the wingman or wing person on somebody else pushing that because I think it's important, but I don't think it's it's necessary, but not sufficient. And I do think we've seen, for example, AI. A lot of the, the work is is happening at OSTP. And uh, you know, one of the things that, that annoys me as a former VC and a former technology guy is is the kind of disdain that most tech folks have for Washington until they need Washington. Um, you know, so it's it's yes, we are an imperfect body to get all this stuff. But um, you ought to help us because if not, we'll either seed leadership, which we've done, for example, on if you look at all the things around social media from 
you know, privacy laws to content moderation to kids' online safety. We basically turned over uh, the, the keys to the Europeans or the Brits who've advanced you know, rules on all of those. So we can either um, lose our traditional leadership position or if you don't work with us and we don't do this in a thoughtful way, you get an overreaction or a simplistic approach that, that isn't as nuanced as needed. So, um, you know, asking the phone, and I think at least st sticking with the AI so far, many of the leaders that I've been talking with, I think will be the first to acknowledge, yes, we need some guardrails. Yes, we need some government regulation. The problem I found, at least dealing with the big platform companies, the social media companies, not regards to AI, but in regards to, you know, Facebook and Google and, and Amazon, et cetera, is they're normally, we're in favor in, in theory, but when it comes to the written word, they've always got a problem. Uh, you know, not exactly that bill or not exactly this bill, even something as simple as like data portability and interoperability, you know, something that should be a low hanging fruit. We've not been able to get that done. So um, I do think on back on AI, you know, ho holding these folks accountable to actually work with us to get a thoughtful regulatory framework is, is what I'm shooting for. And the security piece is a place to start. I think that's, again, there's virtual 100% agreement. So how we translate that into a, uh, a legislative package uh, will be something I'll be working on. But it, again, security is necessary, but not sufficient, just as is the question about getting more expertise within federal government necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, so let's come back to the Restrict Act for a second. Um, sort of uh, process forward, as well as any um, uh, changes you're excited to make uh, in response to the the sort of criticism you've gotten around the bill, um, with regards in particular to open source technology, as well as um, the impact on uh, individuals. Sure. You know, again, the genesis of this legislation was not about TikTok. It was about the fact uh, our approach to foreign-based technology that poses a national security risk has been what I call whack-a-mole. You mentioned Kaspersky. A few years ago, it was Kaspersky. We're still trying to deal with Kaspersky. More recently, it was Huawei and ZTE. Now it is, it is, um, it is, Wall, it is TikTok. And what we thought was we need a rules-based approach that recognizes, particularly when we're talking about communication technologies, there, we have got to protect the First Amendment, that would give any of these entities their day in court. It would be incumbent upon the you know, the government, including the intelligence community that I oversee, to declassify as much information as possible. So it's not just the government says, but it's got to be, we got to prove our case. Um, we've got to show control. And what was fascinating, because this is not just a phenomenon that's taking place in America, um, India banned TikTok three years ago at, at an individual user level. Canada, the UK, um, the European Union had banned it off government phones. More recently, the BBC told all their journalists uh, to get off TikTok because you could be potentially being monitored. And, and again, the concern we have about TikTok is both the data collection possibilities, which ultimately might be able to be walled off, but so far have not. But equally, if not more important in mind, 150 million Americans using TikTok on average, what TikTok says, 90 minutes a day, you talk about a uh, misinformation, disinformation, propaganda tool on steroids, um, as you see, the, the, the numbers starting to say that about 40% of people between 18 and 24 get most of their news off TikTok. That, I believe, is a, is a national security risk. Um, now, it doesn't mean that we don't also need to deal with Facebook and Google. And steal. I'm, I'm for a privacy bill. I'm for kids' online safety and for Section 230 moderation. But 
This is uniquely different because of, of, um, uh, because of the CCP ultimate control. And what we crafted, we thought, was a, was a very targeted, had no ability to touch an individual, was not some massive expansion of government power. Matter of fact, most of the language we took was taken directly from the rules around surrounding the so-called 301 companies that are put on watch lists already. So it was not something new created. And what was curious was to see, you know, we were moving along merrily and you know, picking up bipartisan supporters up to 26 now, 13 Democrats, 13 Republicans. The Biden administration um, uh, came out in support. And then the TikTok CEO, Mr. Show, testified and had a, you know, I think uniformly viewed as pretty rough go at it. And TikTok, which has spent over $100 million lobbying, flicked a switch. And suddenly they are sponsoring, you know, there's not a TV show you can turn on that doesn't ultimately have a TikTok commercial on it. All the little political cheat sheets that people on Capitol Hill read every day, the politicos, the axios, et cetera, were all being sponsored by TikTok. We suddenly get attacks from the right and the left, some of the more liberal members in the House and Tucker Carlson on the right, uh, raising mostly completely false claims. Um, but you spend a lot of money and you generate that buzz. So we are very much looking at changes and talking to folks, um, some of our critics to say, how can we double make sure that even if TikTok were ultimately banned, if an individual in America deciding wanted to use a VPN or she wanted to use a VPN to get around it and get on TikTok, there would be no individual penalties, number one. Number two, how do we make absolutely sure that there's not some massive expansion of government powers under a Patriot Act 2.0? Number three, how can we make absolutely clear that an American company that happens to be doing business or touching China in some way couldn't be covered by, by, this, um, by, this, by this law? We don't think any one of those three are truly justified, but part of the legislative process is to kind of, if we have to put additional belt and suspenders or or make the changes to rebut uh, these arguments, the end of the day, it'll be interesting to see whether that will bring people along. Because one of the things I've said, listen, there's a lot of incredibly creative things going on in TikTok. There's a lot of people that now make their living as social influencers. I'm all for that. Uh, I just feel like I do hope, though, and, and believe that if, if TikTok were to go away, and it doesn't have to be an American company, there could be a Brazilian or an Indian or a Canadian company that would provide those same kind of earning opportunities and that same kind of creativity. Let's talk about uh, China and the intelligence community for a second. There's been a lot of um, uh, uh, reporting about uh, sort of frustrations that Biden administration officials have expressed about their inability to um, get real concrete answers from the IC, as well as some news around, you know, a new China center in the uh, in the CIA and a China mission center in the CIA and a broader focus, you know, transferring out of, uh, you know, South Asia more towards um, uh, uh, engaging with uh, questions around China. Um, I don't know if you want to give like a grade of how uh, of how this has been going or maybe some reflections on the on the sort of challenges and what your um, what what, if anything, needs to be done from a legislative perspective to keep that um, keep that ball rolling. Well, actually, and it's taken longer than it should. But we had our whole IC that was generally focused on kind of the terrorism threat for a decade. To go back to great power competition with Russia and China, and there was always at least the remnants of a, of an operation vis-a-vis -vis Russia, formerly the Soviet Union. So it was almost easier to go back towards Russia. To focus on China, 
you know, has, has been a shift. Uh, I can tell you the budget proposals this year are finally hitting the numbers that I would like to have seen last year. Um, I am surprised there is this new China Center, there is this new technology center at, at the CIA. I, I mean, uh, I'll be seeing uh, Intel leaders and uh, literally today. So I, I think they're doing a pretty good job. But if they're not on on making clear to the administration, for that matter, to Congress and the public, what, what those centers are focused on, um, I'll see if we can improve. But the bigger question here is, and it it's, gets to a really hard policy issue. Traditionally, the intel community has spied on an opposing nation's military capability and their political leadership. Problem in 2023, at least in my mind, is national security is a lot different in 2023 than it was in 2003 or 1993. So simply who has the most tanks and guns and ships isn't necessarily who the winner is going to be. I do believe, and 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 and, and we've never faced an economic challenger like China that is making the kind of investments in these technology domains. I believe absolutely it, national security includes who wins the race for AI. Who wins the race to where we produce semiconductors? Who has the overhead ca capabilities in terms of satellites? You know, who does synthetic biology? Who does advanced energy? And the nature of our spying operations are we always look outward, which is we have this line that is, frankly, I think most people would be, would be pleasantly surprised that it really is followed maybe to the extreme that we look out but don't look in. So if I go to the ODNI, the Director of National Intelligence, talk to their analysts, they might know a little bit about, well, first of all, getting them to focus on all these technologies rather than just the, the political leadership in the military is a work in progress, number one. But even if they are focusing on China's investments in fusion, and then we say, and how are we doing in comparison? We say, well, we can't look there. You know, we can't, you know, a Goldman Sachs first-year associate would know more about where we are in many of these technology areas uh, than some of our best Intel analysts. Now, people are recognizing this. Uh, General Nakasone, who's, I think, one of the real leaders uh, at the National Security NSA that does a lot of our signals intelligence, has said he needs about 30 folks from Commerce Department to work on this. Secretary Romando, I think, uh, doing a great job. I think she absolutely gets the fact, just as the CHIPS implementation is part of national security, that following these other technology domains is part of her job, but how we marry that information in a way that doesn't freak out the American people, but oh my gosh, we're looking at how America is developing in these various technology areas is something we still got to get, we still got to figure it out and then, you know, make the case that this is critically important to the American public. And is that is that a new body? Is that new authorities? Um, is that an open source center? Like, do, do you have a vision of what the solution is? I would say that's also a work in progress. A lot of it will be around open source. Um, you know, you we go back to uh, you know, the power of AI. Almost all of that has come from open source data. So, um, and and sometimes convincing the Intel community that uh, it's just as valid if it comes from open source as opposed to stealing a secret is, uh, you know, still a little bit of a mind shift. Um, but laying out that in a thoughtful way to one, make the case most broadly that national security is much broader than it used to be. And two, for us to compete, we need to really be looking at China, where they're investing. And part of that, where they're investing and where they're making their progress, we have to also look at then how we and our friends are doing in comparison. And that's a 
different mission from a, you know, a, a cloak and dagger spy uh, or a James Bond movie, you know, focusing on a particular political leadership or who's got the most uh, advanced piece of um, military hardware. Yeah. If you if you go back to the um, uh, some reports that came out with uh, in the 80s between the U.S. and Japan, you had like the Office of Tech Assessment really doing great work, you know, looking industry by industry about where the U.S. was relative to China and where the U.S. could invest or not. But um, anyways, maybe we'll get that again. One last question for you. Um, uh, have you thought much about AI's ability to improve d domestic governance more broadly? I mean, how long should voters have to wait for IRS, GPT, and like, what is an appropriate lag between all of this stuff um, getting, you know, improving productivity in the private sector versus that um, ending up uh, sort of uh, impacting, you know, everything from intelligence collection all the way to sort of uh, more prosaic government services? Great question. And matter of fact, um, you know, Ian Bremer, who follows a lot of the, the international affairs stuff, he had a good piece today on this very question. I don't think, you know, I've not seen somebody articulate articulate that vision yet. Um, I hope I can get informed enough to at least help or put out some ideas about this. But um, you know, to be honest with you, if, if we were having this conversation a year ago, I thought at that point, AI was simply an overhyped term for advanced statistics. Then I started meeting some of these these you know, groundbreaking leaders and going, holy heck, this is a lot. And then I would even hear some some of the folks, some of the guys, like some of the folks who did social development, some of the folks who've been, you know, the, the technology doomsayers and got to the point of a bit terrified and trying to now, you know, adjust where I sit on that continuum, get informed in real time and hopefully counsel my colleagues not to get so far in front of their skis on policy prescriptions that will either go too far or be kind of laughed at as being naive is where we're trying to hit a sweet spot. And this question of, of the upside in terms of how citizens interact with government, there's a, man, the potential is great, but the potential for mischief is great as well. Thank you so much for having me. Hope we can do it again.